We're going to go into Matthew 7, and we're just going to cover the first six verses. And uh, these six verses deal with how we try to control others by blaming them or condemning them and and forcing them uh, to do things uh, that we think God wants them to do. And this is uh, sometimes some of us are guilty of how we do this, how we push our family, our friends, co-workers, neighbors, even even total strangers towards um, the, the brilliant solutions that we have for their life. Right. Um, and I've been guilty of this myself, um, especially with family and friends. I, I would try to convince them to do things that God would want them to do against their wishes. And there may be times that that I actually still do this. I, I try really hard not to do this, but but it's possible that it still happens. And perhaps you're guilty of this as well. And maybe you're on the receiving side of this because Christians are really good at telling you what to do. So maybe you're on the receiving side of this. And in the past several weeks, we, we've been talk to, talking, well, actually, I've been talking about how the Sermon on the Mount builds upon itself, right? And that's something that we need to continue thinking about as we move into this chapter. And, as, and I say this because um, if we're still subject to the things in chapter 5, so anger, contempt, lusting, verbal manipulation, getting even, uh, if we're still concerned or dealing with issues in chapter six, uh, worrying about looking good, uh, having wealth, um, then these things addressed in chapter seven, they're going to be really difficult to understand. They're going to probably go over our heads in understanding them. And because in chapter seven, Jesus illustrates uh, a, a love, an agape love in three different ways. And two of them we're going to talk about tonight. And the third one we'll talk about next week. But the first one is illustrated in verses one through five. And this is where Jesus starts out saying, judge not that you be not judged. And the second one is in verse six, when Jesus tells us, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And then there's the third one, verses seven through eleven. We'll talk about that next week. So let's go to verse one. Let's go to the the most quoted Bible verse in the United States is this verse right here. Judge not that you be not judged. Everybody knows this one in the United States, Christian or not. When I worked in the investment world, um, I had this quoted to me by a a man who was in an adulterous relationship, as well as others there um, who weren't Christians, who didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Uh, They didn't know anything else about the Bible. But they knew this verse It was really weird. And and you can go to a complete stranger and they'll know this verse. They won't be able to tell you where it is in the Bible, but they know that it's in here. Right. And so I said to my colleague, I was like, dude, you're married, man. What are you doing? Why are you sleeping around with another woman? And, and then he replied, hey, man, judge not that you be not judged. <laughs> and then he said, I. I don't know where it's at, but I know it's in the Bible. And so, you know, even though he was he was doing a, a wrong thing, he was doing a sinful thing. I, I have to agree with him that he, he got a lot of it right. Um, verse one and two. Judge not that you be not judged for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. See, this colleague of mine was mostly right because I did approach him in a spirit and an attitude of condemnation. And which is what uh, this verse is about. It's about condemnation. These verses are teaching us against condemnation. And you may ask, like, what do you mean? It says judge. Like, what? How do you get that? 
Well, you have to look at verse two and verse one simultaneously. Well, not simultaneously, but uh, backing each other up. And because condemnation, if you're looking at verse two, it inevitably brings about a counterattack. Right. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Condemnation always includes some form of self-righteousness within us. And self-righteousness always involves some form of like comparison or, or some form of condemnation. And so you take a look at yourself, for example, when you were a teenager, for some of us, that was many moons ago. For others, it was just yesterday. And say you're a teenager and your parents are in the car, you're driving too fast. And, and so so dad says, hey, speed limit 65, slow down. My day was 55, so I'm giving you my age. So weren't you looking for the next opportunity to see when um, they would drive over the speed limit so you can dish it back? I look at this feeling. Once that ticks over 65, I'm getting dad. That's over 65. Right. And if and if they were really harsh on you, you know, for breaking a curfew or or not doing what you said you were going to do, weren't you equally as harsh to them for not keeping what they said that they would do? Right. Or not coming back when they said they would come back. You said you were going to come back for dinner, but you didn't. Right. And, and that's what we do when we're condemned. We look we look to condemn right back at the next opportunity that we have to do so. You see, w- when your parents condemn you and if they if they didn't condemn you, then, um, hey, you were really blessed. But for most of us, we were condemned. Right. Let's face it. And uh, didn't it evoke some sort of anger within you? Right. That's what condemnation does. It stirs up anger. And the nature of anger is to attack. So, so you naturally attack when you're angry because you're condemned. And, and that attacking escalates to contempt, which may lead to uh, other things like shame or self-condemnation. And that is really dangerous because shame and self-condemnation, that, that li- possibly leads to things like physical injury uh, and or abuses, right? So when you look at things like suicide or alcohol abuse or drug abuse or sexual abuse or promiscuity, why, things, why people are looking at different things, this is one element of it. I know it's not saying like it's all about this. There's, there's other elements to it, but this is a contributing factor. Why is that? Well, one reason may be because our, our counterattacks towards uh, our parents, towards authority figures, uh, they weren't successful against them, right? They weren't successful against those guardians of us. They didn't, the, the, the parents, the guardians, the, the authority figures, they didn't allow us to fully express ourselves. And in their attack, instead of allowing us to fully communicate what was going on in us, they, they forced us to sweep those issues under the rug, right? So they forced us to harbor within ourselves, to, to, to leave it inside of us, to deal with it on our own. And if you're, if you're too young, if you're immature, you deal with it in unhealthy ways. So you, so you look at the boyfriend or girlfriend giving you attention. You look at the bottle. You look at the drugs. You look at the other things that people shouldn't be doing, but you get acceptance there. So you do it. Right. And, and they gave us excuses that weren't sufficient and they slammed the door shut to us working things out. Things like parents, things that parents say, because I said so. That, well, what can you say? Door shut, right? Slam shut. As long as you live under my roof. The door shut. Or whatever other statements that close the opportunity for a dialogue. And it's no wonder that some of us have issues that come out later in life in the form of rejection uh, or rejection of authority, uh, perfectionism, procrastination, passive aggressive behavior. And that's one of the reasons Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 4, do not provoke your children to wrath. 
but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So condemnation is a really poor strategy for correcting, or as uh, some Christian labels uh, have it, uh, helping. I'm helping them, right? Because it almost always fails. And we should be careful not to believe that it's okay for us to condemn as long as it's towards the right things. It's the right thing, so I can condemn you. A condemning attitude is never right. It's never right. Even when we think that we're condemning the right things, it's very rare for a person condemned to, to respond by changing in the way that we want them to. Right. If we really want to help people and desire to live together in the power of the kingdom, we have to leave behind the condemnation. We have to leave behind the blaming, which for some of us is really hard to do because we've been raised in such a culture. Many of us grew up in homes like this. Many of us grew up in churches like this. Right. And ones that use condemnation or blame or judgment as some type of a motivator. Right. Or some type of uh, uh, way to say, like, well, we're supporting you, but we support you negatively. And perhaps our parents or others who've used this this judgmental attitude or condemnation towards us um, made it seem that they were helping us. Right. Or or uh, made it seem that it was useful because people do believe that because they get some short term result from it. And there are people who believe condemnation, blame, judgment, that those are primary ways to straighten people out or or to give them the necessary correction. But Jesus tells us, judge not. And he's clearly saying that this is not the way to be in the kingdom, that when we condemn, we are telling the other person that you're not acceptable to me. I reject you. Right. You are undesirable. And even though we don't mean to do that, condemnation makes people feel that they're worthless. They're bad. They don't hold any value. You you know where condemnation, condemnation is best left? It's best left in the hands of God, right? He's able to handle it safely. Just like vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord's, right? Those things like anger, condemnation, vengeance, those are in, those should be left in God's safekeeping. So who do who do we routinely condemn and think that we're right in doing so? Is it our spouse or our children or our friends or others who think differently than we do? Republicans, um, Democrats, right? Who is it? And, and it would be helpful to have you identify that person. Do you know that if we're if, if we cease judging, we become, become the kind of person who's able to, to bless and benefit those around us? Those whom we love and are closest to us, but often our condemnation of them has has just actually just driven them further and further away from us. And there is a way to live in which we don't have to condemn people. And Jesus shows us this in the next several verses of how we can help those we care about. Verses three through five. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Why does Jesus say that those who judge in in the sense of condemning others, why does he say that they're hypocrites? It's because there must is it because uh, there must be something wrong with each one of us because we're all sinners and and therefore we shouldn't condemn until we, we get get the sin out of our own life. Is that the explanation? Or is it one of those things of like, uh, let him uh, who's without sin cast the first stone? Is it one of those explanations? No, it's not that at all. 
Jesus is saying hypocrites because he understands that uh, condemnation. He understands what condemnation is and, and what it involves. When he says, consider the plank in your own eye, the plank is in reference to condemnation. It's not in reference to a particular sin in your life or, or some problem that you have in your life that you need to clear up first before you correct somebody. And Jesus knows that when we condemn someone, it shows our heart does not have the kingdom brightness he desires for us. And it, it's the condemnation that blinds us to the reality of the other person, especially when it's accompanied with things like anger, contempt, self-righteousness, which it usually does. And we can't see clearly how to help our brother because you can't see your brother. You can't see him. So we need to get rid of this condemnation. We get rid of this plank and then we'll be helpful to them. And sometimes we Christians are so condemning that that we don't realize that we're of no help. The Bible tells us first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Getting the plank out of your own eye is not about correcting something wrong within ourselves so that so that we're free to condemn. Oh, uh, I got that sin out of my life. Now, where's my Bible so I can thump that guy with it? Right. It's like. It's not until we've grown into the type of person who doesn't condemn that we're able to help somebody. And that's when we see clearly and that's when we can see how we can actually help somebody. Now, keep in mind, I'm not talking about judging in the form of, of com- condemnation and because there's a distinction between doing it in a condemning heart, a condemning attitude, and also judging in the form of uh, distinguishing between two things, making distinctions between two things. There's a difference between condemnation and separating things, appraising things, or estimating things. And I'm going to use my Uncle Bill for an example, because Uncle Bill is my dentist. And sometimes when I go in for a checkup, Uncle Bill says, nice job, Albert. He goes away. Other times he says, you aren't flossing. goes away. He's a man of very few words. It's three words either way. And now when he tells me when I'm not flossing, then one of the assistants comes in and he tells me, Albert, you're at risk for gum disease. Well, goes away. She's, she has more words, but she's not that talkative either. And Uncle Bill is judging, isn't he? He's judging the condition of my gums. He's discerning how I take care or don't take care of my teeth and gums. He's observing and then telling me what he sees in the examination of my mouth. You know, he looks at x-rays. He looks at how hard he has to work at getting plaque out of my teeth, how sensitive my teeth and gums are, whatever else dentists do. And, and in his practice of dentistry, what he's doing isn't condemning me. He's doing what he's supposed to by assessing the condition of my mouth. And if he has observed that my gums are unhealthy, he tells me, right? Uncle Bill is distinguishing between healthy gums and unhealthy gums. Okay. now it's possible for him to be condemning if he had something against me personally or for some reason he doesn't like people that don't floss all the time. Um, But that wouldn't be characteristic of, of a professional in the field. Right. He's doing his job and rather well, actually, because I've never had a cavity. So. So we can't give up discerning how things are in order to avoid condemning others, if that makes sense. We have to be able to train ourselves in holding people responsible for their failures to discuss their failures with them. But we have to do so without attacking their their worth as children of God. And these are cases where we can even discipline them if if we're in such a position like like a parent or a manager at a job. Uh, But we are to do so without making them feel like a reject. 
And this is a really difficult thing to do because many people can't tell the difference between a negative appraisal of what they do and a condemnation of who they are as persons. They can't separate those things. They think they're, they're married to, to each other. And most people don't know how to take feedback without taking it as, attack, as an attack on their person. And you know that phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. And it's so like difficult to accept. I mean, have you ever said that to somebody and they say, like, oh, yeah, you're right. Never. Right. It's not that easily accepted by people. Right. People often feel that if you just disapprove of what they do or how they do something, then it's taken as condemning them of who they are. But often people tie their person to the sin that uh, so that they can defend what they're doing, that they can that they can continue in in living in their sin. So they manipulate others who are appraising their sinful practice by trying by tying who they are to what they do and that you are influenced to approve their actions. So the ever so important task is to be able to separate condemnation from our discernment. And that's a really difficult thing to do. That, that, takes, some, that takes some prayer there and just some introspection and in how you're going to approach someone. Say, say my friend, for instance, if I went to my friend and I was like, dude, you're sleeping with somebody else. Like, you're married. But what if I changed that and I, and I said, hey, man, um, things wrong in your marriage? Like, can I pray for you? Like, what's wrong? And chatted with him about it. Right. And it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do, because if you have anger or contempt or, or things that in your life that you haven't dealt with, like the things in cha- chapter five and six, then it's really difficult. And, and we need to have discernment. And that's what the last half of chapter seven is all about. And this decision to stop condemning is a really pivotal point in our spiritual life. So is how we choose to handle condemnation when it's directed towards us. We who are in Jesus know, according to Romans chapter eight, verse one, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But how does that help us practically in how to to deal with condemnation? Because even though even though I get this condemnation and I tell myself there's no condemnation, you still feel condemned, don't you? Some of you, maybe some of you are more spiritual and you're like, yes, Lord, you've spoken to me and you can move on. But it's a matter of how we look at the condemnation, right? Are we looking at the condemnation in light of what Jesus did for me on the cross, dying for me and intervening on my behalf so that I can have a relationship with God? Romans chapter eight, verses thirty three through thirty five. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is that even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And if we don't have the proper perspective, it's really easy for us to counterattack. Right. We need to remember why God sent his son into the world. John chapter three, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And there are some practical things to keep in mind about judging. Remember, the Bible is is talking about distinguishing between different things, separating things, appraising, estimating without condemnation. Okay, and it's not saying to chuck discernment out the door or observation out the door. Don't ever don't ever make an evaluation ever again, because if that were true, then how did you get dressed? 
Didn't you dress accordingly? Like you had to make a judgment, right? It's cold. I want a jacket or it's hot. I want to wear a short sleeve. You had to make a judgment, right? So a couple things to keep in mind as we go about judging. But this is uh, without condemnation. First, if there is a lack of clarity as to uh, a sin occurring in someone's life, if there's a, la- a lack of uh, uh, evidence, just assume that it didn't. Okay? Ask yourself if you are sure that the person did what was reported. Did you witness it firsthand? And second, know that the correction is set aside for those who live in the spirit. It's for those who operate in God's power, not in their in their flesh or in the world. Paul says in Galatians chapter six, verse one, that it's reserved for spiritual people. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Ask yourself whether you are a wise and a loving person. Are you living and working in God's divine power? Ask yourself whether or not you'll be able to withstand rebuke yourself. Why? Proverbs chapter 9 verse 8 tells us, Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. So can you withstand rebuke? Because if you can't do it, then are you wise? And if you aren't, then should you make a judgment? But if you can, then you're on the right track. What does your life look like? Right. Because if you're an angry person, if you're a contemptuous person, if you are struggling with these lust issues, perhaps you shouldn't be correcting. Right. Because you you're, you might do it in anger. You might do it in contempt. You might do it without a clear mind. And thirdly, restoration has to be at the heart of those who are doing the correcting. Ask yourself if in your correction, you hope to restore that person and you hope to be in that person's life to map out something for them. And not that it's some sort of checklist for them to go through, right? But how are you going to help in the restoration process, which is a dynamic process? I don't think it's just cut and dry, black and white. I think you need to approach the the Holy Spirit, have him dynamically work on this plan with you and be able to be flexible as to how God's leading you through this. And it's not just about getting someone to do what you want. If you just gave them a checklist and said, like, if you do this, if you attend this, if you do this, then then you're you're okay, you're restored. Really? What if the heart didn't change? So are they restored? It's not so much altering their behavior as much as changing their heart to guide them to Jesus where, where he can work with them. And lastly, those who correct are to do so in humility. We have to know that we ourselves can do the very thing that that person was caught in doing. Right. Why do we need to do this? Because that way it removes any form of self-righteousness within us. Right. It, It removes any form of superiority in us. We approach them as a brother, as a sister. And without this humility, there's no way for restoration because self-righteousness gets in the way. Because that's when the condemnation comes in. Like, I'm better than you. You need to listen to me. I know the way. Right. And there's too much pride there to do any good. So we need to be able to empathize with someone who has fallen to feel the weight of their sin so that we can effectively minister to them. Verse six, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. How many of you have been taught that this verse means that we shouldn't give our valuable things to people? Uh, perhaps uh, people who are perceived as dogs or, or pigs. Anybody? Has anybody taught that? In the, 
I was the only one that had bad Bible teaching. So, um, that there are some pigs and dogs that, who aren't worthy of our good efforts or our good words or even perhaps even the gospel, right? And I have a question for those teachers, my previous teachers that taught this verse in such a way. How can this be if Jesus himself, the pearl of God, came into the world of pigs and dogs, right? And then the common way people have taught this verse is opposed to the spirit of Jesus in his teaching. It's not about giving something valuable to people who aren't worthy of that gift. And Jesus isn't suggesting that some people are to be viewed as pigs and dogs. You pig. He he isn't saying that we shouldn't give good things and do good deeds to people who might reject them or misuse them. Right. He did that himself. His teaching is precisely opposite as evidence of what Jesus did himself. And the problem with pearls for pigs and holy things to dogs is not that the pigs and dogs aren't worthy of that pearl. It's not about worthiness. It's about helpfulness. How many times have you witnessed pearls or, or uh, good things or godly activities pushed on, on children or, or the homeless or church attenders or, or other people that it's not really all that helpful to them? But people in church think it is, so they keep pushing those things, right? Oh, keep going to Bible study or keep going to this or keep going to that or keep doing this and all that. Things that are meant well, things that are meant to, to support somebody, but it's just not helpful to that person at that time. And this verse is a picture about how our efforts to correct and control others by giving our good things, even our precious things to people, giving people good things that they simply can't ingest and use as nourishment for themselves. And we often don't listen to them because we think we know them. We think we know what's best for them, but we don't listen to them. So how do you actually know what they need or what they're wanting if you don't listen? And why do we do this? Well, I think one of the reasons why we do this is it's because it's easier to be pushy to people than to listen to people. It takes time to listen. It takes time to, to gather that person's thoughts and pray about things and, and then seek God's counsel. It's easier just to work down your list. Have you prayed? Have you read your Bible? Are you in a home group? Are you going to church? And so it's easier to push those things instead of listening to that person. Do they need a bag of diapers? Do they need food? Do they just need someone to talk to? So don't push them, right? We have to listen. You know, why, why bother paying any attention to somebody when you can just force them to do what you want them to do, right? It's easier to push. And being pushy is a form of condemnation because by pushing your agenda, you're forcing somebody to experience something that's very unpleasant to them. And Jesus experienced this himself during this time, just as we, we do today. And the result is typically the same as with a dog or a pig. Things that we do with good intentions make little difference in the life of others, even though they're good things. It's really good to read your Bible. It's really good to be in a home group. It's really good to pray. It's really good to go to church, right? But what ends up happening is that the person in need or the unhealthy person just becomes angry and, and attacks us. Why is that? Because you didn't feed them. Because they're cold and they want a blanket or a sleeping bag and you're telling them to go read something. And because that person wasn't helped. 
So the point of the teaching is not that the pearl is wasted, but that the person given the pearl isn't helped. It's about how we push or even force our good ideas on others, whether or not they want them. And you ever wonder why so many teenagers leave church when they go to college? Some think that it's college that causes teenagers to leave their faith. I don't think so. But others may think that and they think, you're going to Berkeley? Oh, my God. No God there. Don't go to Berkeley. Right. I don't think that that's the case. Right. I, I think for the majority, it's not the case. It might, there might be some that, that lose their faith because of those things. But I don't think it's the majority. I think the majority of new adults, these teenagers that become adults, leave their faith because it wasn't their faith. It was their parents' faith. It was their parents' religion. And the good things from that religion were forced on them as grammar school students, as junior high school students, as high school students. And it made little sense to them. There was no ownership of it. And the things pushed on them weren't helpful. Right? You just kept on it. Go to youth group. But mom, I really want to talk about... Go to youth group. They, they have all the answers there. Right? They were forced to eat something that wasn't helpful to them. And for those of us who believe we have these pearls, you know, many of us believe we have pearls. And, and it may have some of us feel that, you know what, we, we can't possibly have something that's not helpful. Right. We can't possibly have the wrong attitude because we have such a great gift. We can't have the wrong motive. We can't have the wrong intentions. This thing is is precious. How can I have in my position a wonderful pearl if my heart wasn't right? Why would God give me such a thing? What I have is, is good for those and I want to give it away. Well, you just might. Maybe. Think about maybe. Possibly. We're human, right? We're, in fact, we're fallen humans. And, and ask yourself, how would you feel if, if the person you gave the pearl to, they just dropped it on the ground, trampled on it, and, and just left it? And the reason why I ask that question is because that'll tell you the condition of your heart. Right? And in offering our pearls, usually what we're doing with our supposed right condemnations and our supposed brilliant solutions to, to, to end what they're doing, it ends up taking people out of their own responsibility. It robs them of the dignity to make their own choices. And we're taking them out of the hands of God and we're trying to put them under our thumb. Right? Controlling them. Instead of trusting God, trusting them in God's hands. And no matter how hard it is, we have to respect people as spiritual beings, even when decisions that they make are different from ours. And they're responsible before God for the path they choose out of their own free will, not us. And for those that, that we love so dearly and we want them to make the right decision, um, judge, judge, if you can, uh, judge, judge if you can do it without condemnation. Right? Those people that are close to you, right? Um, you know, the, the problem I have most is like with, with closer friends and things like that and, and, and family. And, and we really have to ask ourselves, right? Can, can I do this uh, without condemning them? Because if you can't, don't. If you can't discern this situation without condemning them, then just don't. You're going to hurt them. Okay? And if you can't do an assessment without condemnation, they, they are not the only one that has a problem. You also have a problem. Right. And of course, I'm not talking about really young children who haven't matured enough yet to make their own decisions because they, uh, they can't when they're that young. Right. My two and a half year old isn't isn't there yet. Maybe next year. But 
before they enter an age uh, where they can make their own decisions, we have to approach them with, with gentle hands, right? With gentle speech, with gentle actions. And we have to approach them in wisdom, seeking God's wisdom as to how, how we're going to deal with them so that when they reach an age of decision making, they can make better decisions. Now, I can't give you an age because each parent or guardian has to, to, to make that judgment, right? Um, for my daughters, it's going to be 30. So, but, but, but when they make poor decisions later in life, we, we can't violate their free will. God allowed himself in Jesus to pay the price to set us up for a, an arrangement just like this, right? For us to freely choose whether or not we want a relationship with him. But our free will isn't free. It's priceless. It's precious, right? So we can't violate this free will by badgering people into the rightness uh, into with our condemning, right? We can't infringe on their freedom by pestering them into goodness with our pearls or our holy things. So now you're thinking, well, we have to do something. We can't just let bad things happen. That's not loving at all. Uh, what, what do we do? It's not simply a matter of what you do. It's also how you do it. In addition to that, it's not just what you do and how you do something, but it's also when you do it. Jesus in chapter 10, verse 16, tells us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. What is the wisdom of serpents? The wisdom of the serpent is not just that uh, what it does and how it does it, but it's also when its actions take place. And when it acts, it acts quickly and decisively, right? But it, it goes, right? When it decides, it goes, right? And it doesn't hesitate when the time is right. When the time is right, it strikes, right? And it's about the serpent's timeliness. It knows when to act. Take your kids, for instance, or like a teenager. I, I'm just playing this thought in my head about when my girls are teenagers. It really frightens me. So, so I, I need to reprimand them for doing something wrong. I shouldn't do that in front of their friends. It's not the right time. Right. I, I, I shouldn't embarrass them in front of all their friends and tell them, well, well, you should have cleaned your room. It's just not the right time. That's not right. It's not appropriate then. And um, so it knows when to act. And, and how does a serpent get what it wants? It's patient. It's attentive. It's vigilant. And it strikes at the right time. There's a time when the Holy Spirit will make things open for us. Right. And in that window of opportunity, sometimes it's very small, sometimes it's very big. We have to know when to go through those things. And sometimes we're so much in a hurry to do the right things that we don't wait. Right. We're like, oh, the Bible says this. Let's go do it now. But the person might not be ready. Right. Or or how you're doing it. Are, are you condemning them? Is it the wrong attitude? Like you need to check those things. Right. So it's it's what, how and when. OK, how about the dove? The dove is pretty straightforward, right? I mean, there's not, nothing to they're pretty. What you see is what you get, right? It's, just, it's nothing, nothing like a serpent. You're, you're like, he might bite me. But a dove, you're just like, it's a dove. Right. And there are no hidden agendas with a dove. They, they, they can't mislead you or deceive you. They don't plan on escapes or anything. They just say, oh, open window. But they don't be like, I'm going to trick this guy into letting me out. It, it doesn't have a plan of attack because it doesn't attack. Right. 
they're gentle in nature and they're pretty predictable in their actions in that they won't harm you. And so these are the qualities that we're instructed to have. We don't just need to know what to do, which I think most Christians know what to do. They just don't know how to do it and when to do it. Right. We need to know what to do, how to do it and when to do it and to be wise in our actions. And and we're to do it in such a way as to not cause harm, to be like a dove, to, to act without any ulterior motives or without any manipulation, to be trustworthy in what we do and how we do it and when we do it. We need to possess these qualities in order to usher people in the kingdom of God. This is how we walk with others, not forcing them. Right. Do you guys ever like walking when someone pushes you? I, I hate I hate I hate Disneyland. I, I, you don't like you really want to walk with people. Right. And um, like when you're walking with a loved one or, or a spouse and you're holding hand in hand, isn't that pleasant? You're walking with them. Right. That's great. Right. And we can't force them to change. We can't give them spiritual lobotomies and hope that it alters their attitudes and what they do. Right. Even the most helpful correction can belittle someone if it isn't done in the right spirit and with the right timing. And our understanding of God makes a difference in our view of others. When we're caught in the mode of judgment or condemnation or blaming, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that's preventing us from letting God deal with the people we're wanting to judge or condemn or blame? Do you not trust God? Are you not being patient with what God is doing? Because it's by trusting God and prayerfully being patient before the Lord that that the change is allowed to occur. And if you want to see change in someone, it won't be by forcing them to change. You're actually going to drive them further away. And perhaps you, you can do it for a period of time, maybe like when they're kids and you can manipulate the situation or manipulate their environment or force them to do things. But when they're able to exercise their own free will, is it going to last? Maybe, but most likely not. Just like many college students. And we need to be patient with people. We need to keep our faith, our trust and our hope in God and who he is. And we need to respect the freedom that God has given each one of us. And practically speaking, is there a relationship in your life that needs to be adjusted with God's help? How about turning your criticism and your judgment over to Jesus and praying for those who you want to criticize, who you want to judge, who you want to condemn? And this request we lay before God and this interactive asking of God, it's called prayer, is something that really works because it draws people into the kingdom, right? Rather than into our plans. We're pulling them into the kingdom, not into ourselves. And it creates a community of love that is reliant upon God to guide rather than our manipulation, rather than our agendas. And these teachings aren't just for relationships within the church, even though the Sermon on the Mount is for disciples. But really, this is applicable to all of our relationships, isn't it? This is applicable to your, your marriage, your spouse, to your children, your family, your friends, your total strangers. And if anything, it applies more to those who are closest to us. And why do I say this? Because it seems that the ones that are closest to us are the ones that we tend to mistreat the most. And most families would be healthier and happier if the family members in them treated one another with the same respect that they would give to a total stranger. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, he, he writes about familial love in one of the sections. And in there he writes that he has been far more 
been far more impressed by the bad manners of parents to children than by those of children to parent. He writes that parents treat their children with an incivility which offered to any other young people would simply have terminated the acquaintance. Hmm. Parent, I being one, let's face it, sometimes we're hypocrites. We want our kids to understand things that we don't understand ourselves. Right. Like uh, talking out of place and not respecting them. Don't interrupt me. We adults are talking. How often do you interrupt them when they're playing with their friends? Okay, we got to go. Isn't it the same? We tell them not to interrupt us uh, when, when, when we so often interrupt them. And we contradict ourselves. We tell them to control themselves when we, we ourselves don't exercise self-control. You play too many video games or you watch too much TV. Do you work too much? Do you overeat? So we ridicule things that our kids uh, take seriously, yet we get upset at them when they play with our things that we value, right? So get off my computer. Right? We value that, but, but we don't take, consider, take into consideration how valuable that doll is to them. You just throw it away. Or you just toss it somewhere. Oh, I don't know where I put it. I guess I lost it. Isn't that kind of hypocritical? And I realize that most of you aren't parents. And I bring this up more so that um, because some of us have had parents like this. Right? Parents who ask why you are always out. Or why you like being at your friend's house more than your own house. Do we really need to ask why? Do we? I mean, if, if, if we were so disrespected, so mistreated, so not valued, is it a surprise that we don't want to be around an environment that makes us feel that way? And as we move through the chapters of life and have families of our own, it's important to remember where we came from so, so we don't repeat those same mistakes, right? And you know what? You, our parents um, meant well. I would say the vast majority of them, they, they really meant well. And... Um, they really wanted to love you. And, and some of them really do love you. And, and they, they made mistakes. Right? Parents make mistakes. And what we need to do now is, is we need to forgive them. We need to reconcile with them, restore that relationship and forgive them and, and work out any types of differences that we have. But we shouldn't make the same mistakes with our own families, with the ones that we're going to be having. Right. And, and for some of us, that's already here, right? We have our own family units right now. And for others, it's around the corner, like right around the corner. And for others, it's like around the block. But um, by the way, all the staff at Regen are single. Um, but we need to be aware so that we don't continue this cycle of mistreatment, right? And we need to be careful of this with each other in our church body and our con- communities. Are we condemning or are we excluding someone? And Jesus made a point to be with the outcasts in a very organic way. He he didn't approach them as some project, right? Oh, I'm going to go reach those people and this is how I'm going to do it. It was pretty organic, right? Like wherever he went, he kind of worked within those things. He didn't make people a project for himself. He didn't hang out with them to to prove a point. Oh, we're Christians and we got to show other Christians how to do this. And and we got to speak at church events and show them how to reach out to the 20s and 30 somethings. He didn't do that. And he didn't do it for a show. Right? He didn't do it to be like, hey guys, look at me. I can I can heal people. Right? He was there for the outcasts. He was there for pro rejects, right? He was pro reject. 
And he genuinely did what he did for them out of a love for them. That, that was the only reason why. He loved them. It wasn't to, to get some accolades for a church or to get some accolades for a ministry or for themselves to, to make, make himself feel good that, oh, I, I perform at a high level, right? He did it because he loved them. So when we approach ministry, let's, let's just do it simply out of love, not because out of anything else. It's because we love them. But you know who he did condemn? He condemned the self-righteous. He condemned corrupted leaders. And you know what? Jesus can do that. You and I can't. Why not? They deserve it. Because he can be trusted with anger. He can be trusted with condemnation. And I, I don't think any of us can really say that we can be trusted with those things. Right? But Jesus can. So, so trust him. Trust him with everything. He, he's trustworthy, right? And he won't mistreat you or he won't take advantage of you. He, he's a good God. And, and the Bible tells us that God is love. And, and he's available to you. And if you feel condemned by Christians, I'm really sorry about that. That was a misrepresentation of God from people who are sinners just like me. Just like you. But Jesus has made a space for you at his banqueting table. Right. Just like he made a space for me. And just like you made a space for many of you here. And if you don't have this relationship with Jesus, I pray that you do. And it's not because it's like, oh, it's a good Christian thing to do. Go get an altar call. Go win people's souls for Christ. I just, he's good. He's, he's good. And, and he is love. So it's not really like, it's not like, oh, check another one. I got another one in heaven. Like, I don't. God is love. You don't even have to tell me. Go tell somebody else, right? And He wants to walk with you through the trials of your life. And I hope you give us a chance as, as a community to walk with you as a church community through the trials of your life. And, and talk to someone here, whether someone was serving here or, or myself, and, and, and pray with them and, and, or, or talk to the person that brought you and know that Jesus loves you more than you can possibly know. And you're going to unfold things that um, are going to blow your mind. And it's and actually there's no promise that um, your problems are going to go away. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Like uh, your life's going to suck as a Christian. In terms of the trials, like they don't go away. The, the, The awesome thing is that you don't go through it alone. Like Jesus Promises to be there with you, to, to walk through it with you, to love you through those things, to accept you through those things, to cleanse you of all those the, the bad stuff that you've done in the past. But he doesn't promise to wipe away those problems because he loves you too much to do that. Right. He, he wants you to mature. He wants you to be able to freely make choices. He doesn't want to force his agenda on you. He wants you to make choices. He wants you to mature as a, as a to have a relationship with him in that way. In your spousal relationships or dating relationships, how often is it a good relationship when the spouse has to force you to do something? Go buy me flowers. Right? How much better is it like, I got flowers for my wife, or I got chocolate for her, or, I, or I'm thinking about her, and, and I know that she likes socks, and I'm going to buy her some socks. Like, um, it's like, like, how much better is it when you can freely choose to love? Right? He's not going to force it on you. Let's pray. God, um, you've given us a huge task. 
you've given us a huge gift in our free will. And within our free will, sometimes we've misrepresented you with it because we've decided to condemn. And we've decided to judge in such a way that isn't beneficial, that belittles people, that devalues them, that um, makes them as rejects. God, in those instances, we ask that you forgive us. And moving forward, I ask that you would give us wisdom as how as to how we approach people. I ask, God, that uh, you would continue to feed in us what we are to do, that you would continue to feed in us how we are to do it. And also, God, for us to be sensitive in, in our prayer life and, and, and uh, uh, discussing with you when those things should be done. And we ask, God, that we wouldn't cause harm to people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.